Welcome into Lockdown Blackhawks. Today is Tuesday, August 4th, 2020. I am your host, Jack Bushman, tuning in for the 183rd episode of Lockdown Blackhawks. As always, be sure to subscribe to the podcast for free wherever you may listen to your podcast, whether that be through Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or Google Podcasts. You'll be able to get the latest episode as soon as it comes out each day, so please be sure to go do that. Also, please go follow our Twitter page, which can be found at capital L, capital O, underscore Blackhawks, with some really good stuff being posted there every day. Alright, to kick off the show today, guys, we gotta talk about the Blackhawks' disappointing 6-3 Game 2 loss to the hands of the Edmonton Oilers last night, and... Although the Blackhawks did claw their way back a handful of times in the contest, it was a disappointing effort just because they didn't really do all the things that we talked about in the previous episodes that were going to be keys to the series. We saw Connor McDavid take over right from the get-go. He scores 19 seconds in on kind of a lucky bounce. The puck found him while he was wide open. Adam Boquist left him wide open. Not a good game for Adam Boquist and Duncan Keith in that top pairing. And then McDavid in transition absolutely torched Ole Mata with a beautiful backhand goal past Crawford. Not much you can do there. That's just Connor McDavid being Connor McDavid. But just four minutes and five seconds into the contest, the Blackhawks found themselves down two to nothing. They were able to cut the Oilers' lead in half before the end of the first intermission, as Patrick Kane was finally able to beat Miko Koskinen with a sneaky shot five hole after a great feed from Alex Debrinkit from behind the net. And also have to give a shout out to Slater Cuckoo, who made the whole play happen with a nifty little maneuver in transition to win a battle and get the puck down low to Debrinkit. So, game two was a really solid offensive performance for Cuckoo. We'll have a little bit more on him in a little bit. But unfortunately, just one minute and 44 seconds out of the first intermission, Tyler Ennis was able to beat Corey Crawford with a wrist shot from the blue line. Kind of a soft goal as it went through his five hole, but it did deflect off of Alex Nylander and into the net. And also the whole play was created off a Nylander turnover in the neutral zone. So after a strong game one performance where Nylander was really good on the back check and forced a couple turnovers in the Oilers defensive zone, he was pretty poor in game two, kind of another ghost performance that tended to happen in the regular season. He'd have one really good game and then the next he wouldn't show up at all. That's kind of the inconsistencies we've seen from Nylander so far in his career but he actually had the lowest ice time of any Blackhawks forward besides John Quenville, who I also have to mention, by the way, got into the Blackhawks lineup on the third line in place of Drake Kajula, who was suspended for his illegal check to the head of Tyler Ennis in Game 1, but Quenville did not play much of a factor for the Blackhawks in that third line. The Hawks mostly double-shifted Patrick Kane with Alex Dabrinkit and Kirby Dock as Quenville played just six minutes and four seconds, and heading into the third period, he only had three minutes. A handful of, basically half of his ice time came in garbage time, so I'm not really sure why the Blackhawks decided to go with Quenville over Dylan Secura. I understand that, I understand that, Quenville has a little more beef to him and a little more si- he's a little more similar to Drake Kajula in the game that he brought to the Blackhawks lineup, but at the same time, I feel like Sakura certainly could have helped the offense more when they needed it here tonight as Edmonton put up six goals. 
And Sakura had been really good in his looks. I know he didn't play much on Wednesday in the Hawks' exhibition contest against St. Louis, but he was good throughout training camp, and I thought he was well-deserving of this look tonight. So I'm sure he's probably frustrated that he didn't get the opportunity to play. And Jeremy Colleton, kind of a bonehead decision to put Joel, uh, not Joel Quenville, God, to put John Quenville in the Blackhawks lineup for Game 2 of this contest. Really a non-factor. Um, but after Ennis's goal, the Blackhawks were able to battle back yet again. Slater Cuckoo with a nice goal, seven hole on Koskinen after Debrinket picked up his second primary assist of the game. Kirby Dock also wound up with a secondary assist as well. A good passing play there from the Blackhawks. And then Oli Mata jumped into play and was able to kind of sneak a weak goal that kind of trickled in past Koskinen to tie up the score three to three late. In the second period, Kirby Doc with the primary assist on that one. So as just a 19-year-old, Kirby Doc already has a multi-game playoff performance. He's going to be so good, guys. He's gotten noticeably better since the pause on March 11th. Just stronger on the puck. He's winning more board battles. He's calling for the puck on the power play. I'm happy the Hawks are giving him a look. Uh, but speaking of the Blackhawks' power play... In the second period, they had four opportunities on the man advantage, and they weren't able to convert on any of them. For the game, they came up 0 for 4 as well, so besides the four opportunities in that second period, they didn't get another look on the man advantage, but after scoring three goals in game one, they weren't able to score any on the power play, and Edmonton outplayed them special teams-wise. The Hawks did do their part, and they killed off four of the Oilers' five power plays, but they were able to get one after Ole Mata tied up the scores. Connor McDavid wound up with the hat trick on the power play to give the Oilers a 4-3 to lead. But the special teams department, I talked about how that was going to be a key for the series, and the Hawks came up flat on their own power play in Game 2. Weren't able to really generate any momentum. Nothing was really going at all. And I was really disappointed that Jeremy Colleton did not give Dominic Kubalik a look at the right circle, especially after scoring a beautiful one-time goal in Game 1. If it isn't broke, I don't know why he's fixing it. We saw Dominic Kubalik out in front of the net for the majority of the Hawks' four power plays, with Kane and Taze switching off at the right dot. Um, Duncan Keith was captaining the power play at the blue line yet again. Don't have a problem with that, but I think the Hawks need to go with... Kubalik at the right dot, Keith at the point, Kane at the left dot, Kirby Dock down low, and then Jonathan Taze kind of as that net front presence. With Taze at the right circle and the left circle, the Hawks weren't able to really get anything going. They had a couple of good looks, but most times they missed the net or the Oilers were completely bailing their goaltender out by blocking a ton of shots. They had a, a ton of them, I believe. It was Ethan Bear who had a really good one. Same with Darnell Nurse while the Blackhawks had a couple of power play opportunities there in the second period, and they came up empty. Edmonton was able to head into the third period with a 4-3 to lead, and then we saw Corey Crawford flub the puck from behind the Hawks' net and give James Neal an open cage to put Edmonton ahead 5-3. to That really deflated deflated the, uh, the wind in the Hawks' sails there, and then just uh, a little over 30 seconds later, Alex Chason made it 6-3 on an ugly goal. Adam Boquist was out of position, just laying in the crease on Corey Crawford, and that was really all she wrote. The Hawks did not look good in the third period after that. They only put up seven shots on goal. They were outshot by the Oilers while they were down. You never want to see that in a playoff game. So it was a disappointing effort in the final 20 minutes from the Blackhawks for sure, 
But what really killed them was that misplay from Corey Crawford behind the net. They didn't really stand a chance after that. And it's tough to see that happen because a lot of people are going to blame Corey Crawford for this Game 2 loss. And that's what happens when you see six goals on the board from Edmonton. But truthfully, I wouldn't really pin this one on Corey Crawford. Two of the goals the Oilers scored bounced in off Hawks players, and then the uh, two of the other ones were just Connor McDavid doing Connor McDavid things. Even uh, the power play goal redirected off a black redirected in off Duncan Keith's leg. So kind of just an unfortunate night for Corey Crawford. Uh, he only wound up stopping 29 of the Oilers' 35 shots on goal. Not a good effort defensively from the Hawks overall as a team. So Crawford and the whole defense will have to be much better in order to turn momentum back in their favor for the rest of the series. Alright, coming up in just a moment, I'm going to talk a little bit more about the Blackhawks' disappointing 6-3 Game 2 loss to the hands of the Edmonton Oilers. And I'll also discuss some changes the Hawks are going to have to make in order to win two of the next three contests. This is the Locked On Blackhawks podcast, part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. Thanks for listening today. I am your host, Jack Bushman. Be sure to check out my personal Twitter page, at JackBushman2, and my Blackhawks Twitter page, at Hockey for all the latest Blackhawks news and updates. Also, be sure to subscribe and follow Locked On Blackhawks for free wherever you listen to your podcasts and also on Twitter to get the latest episode as soon as it comes out each day. Alright, back to the Blackhawks' 6-3 Game 2 loss to the Edmonton Oilers. Looking at the box score here, and the Oilers pretty much dominated in every department. Shots on goal were 35-26. to Edmonton won 59.6% of the face-offs. They were 1-5 for five on the power play and 4-4 four for four on the penalty kill. They out-hit the Hawks 27-10, had 8 more shot blocks than the Hawks. And Edmonton won the 5-on-5 battle with 5 goals for to 3 against. And they also had 17 high-danger chances at even strength to the Hawks' 5. So, kind of hard to win when you put up numbers like that. And that essentially tells me that the Hawks were outworked in basically every department. You knew McDavid and the Oilers were going to come out with a strong push right out of the gate. And you know that the Hawks knew that, but somehow they found themselves down 2 to nothing less than five minutes into the contest, and that really put them in a hole going forward. They also knew it would be hard to win the special teams battle if they didn't score any power play, bo- power play goals, but they got beat in that department as well. It is concerning to me to see the Oilers dominate at the faceoff dot, as David Kampf was just 2-for-8 after winning 66% of his draws in Game 1, and then Kirby Dock was also 1-for-8, which you can kind of expect from a 19-year-old center in the playoffs. Dylan Strom was actually the Blackhawks' best faceoff man in Game 2, as he won 17 of his 13 faceoffs for 54%, but they weren't able to get him on the ice that much because he was also a minus four and did not record a single stat in the box score. Like, legit, the dude did not have one hit, one block, one shot on goal. It's just zeros everywhere, and that's likely why he played just 13 minutes and five seconds compared to a guy like Ryan Carpenter who had 14 and a half minutes of time on ice. 
And actually, the Hawks' fourth line looked pretty solid for the second consecutive game last night. They moved the puck well together in the offensive zone, and the only reason why Highmore and Carpenter finished as a minus in the contest was because of Boquist's and Strom's horrific effort on Chason's goal that put the dagger in the Hawks to make it 6-3. But if the Hawks' fourth line is looking like one of their better offensive lines, then usually things aren't going too good for the top six. And that was kind of the case on Monday night as the top line of Kubalik, Taze, and Saad was held off the score sheet after tallying 10 points as a trio in Game 1. And they only had four shots on goal in total, so not quite the same success that they had on Saturday against Mike Smith, Miko Koskin, and the Oilers' defense did a much better job. They got much better play from Oscar Clefbaum and Adam Larson. Darnell Nurse was really impressive as well on defense for Edmonton. Um, But looking at the Hawks' offense, Patrick Kane was really never able to get anything going on the second line with Nylander and Strom, as all three goals the Blackhawks scored came while Kane was on the ice with Dabrinkit and Doc as they had to double-shift him with John Quenville having to step into the lineup. Uh, But both Dabrinkit and Doc actually finished with a plus three, plus minus rating. So look for those two to stay together and be joined by Drake Kajula as he returns from his suspension on Wednesday night. I think a major key to the series will be the Hawks feeling comfortable with rolling all four forward lines out there. Last night, they weren't able to do that with Quenville in the lineup. But once Kajula comes back, Kane will no longer have to double shift with that third line, and he can focus solely on getting the second line going along with the two young forwards of Nylander and Strom. I think we all know that the top line is going to have to be better in order to come away with the series win, and that was one of my major keys going into Game 2. I said, if the Blackhawks' top six can outplay the Oilers, then they'll come away with the win in my opinion. Well, Connor McDavid picked up a hat trick, and Ryan Nugent Hopkins added three assists as well, while the top, the Hawks' top six was shut out completely, and this resulted in a dominant 6-3 Oilers victory. So, the top six forwards led by Kane and Taze will have to be much better in these next couple of games for things to get back in the Blackhawks' favor. Alright, in just a minute, I'm going to continue to talk about some changes the Blackhawks will have to make in order to come away with a Game 3 victory tomorrow night, and I'll also discuss the mood around the locker room after the crushing Game 2 defeat. Jack Bushman, your host of the Locked On Blackhawks podcast. You can reach me on Twitter at JackBushman2 or at Talkin' Hockey, or you can also email the Locked On Blackhawks email, which is LockedOnBlackhawks at gmail.com for any questions you have about the show, myself, or anything that has to do with the NHL's 2014 postseason. Okay, so we just finished talking about the Blackhawks keys offensively for a Game 3 victory over the Edmonton Oilers. Now, looking at the Hawks on defense, this was really where the problem lied on Monday. The top pairing of Duncan Keith and Adam Boquist was absolutely horrendous, to kind of put it nicely. 
with both players finishing with a minus three plus minus rating. Keith took two penalties, and then Boquist was just a complete liability all night long. As on McDavid's first goal, he was completely out of position, and then on Chason's goal, he got bullied by James Neal and allowed him to take the puck right to the net. So, definitely one to throw in the trash if you're Adam Boquist, as he played a little over 11 minutes at 5-on-5 with Keith, and... To be on the ice that little at even strength and allow three goals, especially for a top-pairing guy, that certainly isn't great. We did see Boquist have the lowest ice time by far of the Hawks' six defensemen for the second straight game, and I think that's going to be the case going forward as well. Regardless, though, Boquist will need to be much better when he's on the ice at even strength as he cannot continue to play poorly and be caught out of position while playing mostly against the Oilers' top six. That's just a recipe for disaster, and the Blackhawks will lose the series if the Keith Boquist pairing isn't able to figure it out in a hurry. As for the Hawks' second defensive pairing of Calvin DeHaan and Connor Murphy, those two were on the ice together for nearly 13 minutes at even strength, and they're on the ice for only one goal against, but they did post a subpar 36 Corsi percentages a pairing, and although they see a lot of time in defensive situations and in the defensive zone well against the Oilers' top players, those numbers have to be better without a doubt. I know it's tough because neither guy saw much ice time throughout training camp with the Hawks, so I'm sure they are still adapting to the NHL speed and whatnot, but they're going to have to lock it down and help the Hawks in the defensive zone at even strength going forward if things want to get back in the Hawks' favor. Both those guys did do a good job leading the Hawks' penalty kill to a strong performance as you'll take four out of five kills against a power play every time, so don't get me wrong, I wasn't... Uh, I wasn't too mad with the play from Connor Murphy and Calvin DeHaan, but they certainly will have to be better and give a better effort in clearing the puck out of the Hawks zone and keeping it out of harm's way against the Oilers' top six. The Mata Cuckoo pairing, those two, whew, they had an eventful night on Monday as both Mata and Cuckoo actually chipped in for a goal and Cuckoo added an assist as well. But Mata had himself a rough go at it defensively, and he also took a bad penalty in the game as well. So, offensively, you have to be happy with what you got from your third pairing, as they were on the ice for all three Hawks goals, and they also posted a 52 Corsi percentage together, which was by far the best of the Hawks' three pairings. But Mata is going to have to lock things up going forward, because he got absolutely torched by Connor McDavid in transition. And... While I'm not sure there's another defenseman in the league who could have handled that better, you have to be more aware, be more aware of the player in that situation. You cannot afford to allow McDavid to score that second goal in just four and a half minutes to start the contest. So for me on defense, the major key going forward for the Blackhawks is shutting down Connor McDavid, of course, but also how Adam Boquist is going to handle his 11 to 14 minutes at 5-on-5 five five with Duncan Keith while mostly playing against McDavid and Leon Dreisaitl. If Boquist is able to pick things up in the defensive zone and move the puck more efficiently in transition, I think that goes a long way for the Hawks in this series. I also think another major key is how Mata and Cuckoo will handle their larger role in the series now that we know that Boquist is not going to see much ice time every game. Mata struggled defensively in his 17 minutes, there's no way around it, but he and Cuckoo were solid together defensively in Game 1 and have both been a surprise on offense, so 
if those two can continue to have success and keep the Oilers' offense quiet while on the ice together, then there's a good chance the Blackhawks will be able to right this ship and sneak away with a series victory against the Edmonton Oilers. I wanted to quickly mention the mood around the Blackhawks' locker room after the loss, and it's pretty confident. It's a pretty confident vibe around those core players as they know what they have to do in order to get things back on track. Jonathan Taze, Slater Cuckoo, and Jeremy Colleton all mentioned locking in on number 97, Connor McDavid, as it's pretty obvious they cannot allow him to take over games single-handedly. More times than not, you're going to lose that battle. If they can just contain him a little bit, I mean, he already has seven points in just two games. So if they can limit him to just one goal, which honestly is ridiculous to say at the NHL level, it sounds like we're talking about like a stud 13-year-old in the Little Leagues here, but if you can limit McDavid to just one goal, I like our chances, honestly. Besides that, the Hawks know they gave Edmonton too many chances as a team, so They'll have to be better defensively, obviously, but they feel confident that the offense can get things back on track. I mean, they were able to still score three goals without the top six going at all, really. I mean, Kane was able to have success on the third line with Doc and Debrinkit, but the top line with Jonathan Taze, Dominic Kubalik, and Brandon Saad, they weren't able to get anything going at all. The Hawks know that if that line finds the back of the net just once, then Game 2 changes completely. So, if that top line can contribute in any way going forward for the Hawks, then the team feels really good about their chances of coming away with a victory. Alright, I think that is going to wrap up my recap of Game 2 between the Blackhawks and the Oilers, and also Tuesday, August 4th episode of Locked On Blackhawks. Thank you again for tuning into the show, and be sure to subscribe and follow the Locked On Blackhawks podcast for free right now on your favorite podcast app, and you'll get the latest episode as soon as it comes out each day. And after the show, ask your smart device to play the Locked On NHL podcast for all the latest news from all 24 teams currently involved in the 2020 postseason. Thank you again for tuning into today's episode. I am your host, Jack Bushman. You can catch me on Twitter at my personal account, at JackBushman2, or my Blackhawks account, at TalkinHockey. For any questions at all regarding anything related to the Lockdown Blackhawks podcast, you could always email LockdownBlackhawks at gmail.com or call 708-653-0572 to leave a voicemail. So until tomorrow's episode, I hope you all enjoy the rest of your day, and thanks again for listening to the Lockdown Blackhawks podcast, your team every day.